Uh, our study this, this morning is going to be in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to continue our study of this text, and I just want to say again, um, I, you know, I, I had announced uh, earlier this fall that I was going to be going through Revelation, at least the first three chapters for now, and then Pastor John uh, decided to steal my thunder, uh, and uh, he certainly does that, but uh, he's going through it a little bit faster, and he's already into chapter 4, and, and I'm not going to get there uh, anytime soon. We're going to look at the first three chapters of Revelation, and then uh, go into something else for a while, and then come back to it and, and tackle this important book uh, kind of piece by piece. So turn to Revelation chapter 1, and uh, the focus of this next section is is on the vision that, that John receives on the island of Patmos. It runs from verse 9 to verse 20, but we're not going to get through all of that uh, this morning. But to set the context and also help us understand why this text is so important and why uh, we will have a deficient understanding of Christ if we neglect the book of Revelation, can be seen in the kind of Christology, uh, the kind of doctrine of Christ that we find in the book of Revelation which, as we've already commented on numerous times, that that, um, that, that Christology is, is very high and robust. We tend to think of Christ in terms of the, the promises and the prophecies related to his first advent, and then also to his incarnation and the humiliation that he endured as he walked upon this earth. We we think of even how the Apostle Paul described it as he urged the Corinthians. Uh, he said, I myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And, and generally speaking, if we would say, okay, tell me about Jesus Christ, that would typically be the way we would define him according to that meekness and gentleness. And certainly that is very, very true. And all of us are so thankful for that. Our salvation rests upon that. And yet, that's not the whole picture of who Christ is. Reminded by a, I'm reminded of a statement by Stephen Charnock about the first advent of Christ and, and uh, the picture of Jesus in that first advent uh, prophesied by Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 7, for example, says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. That's Isaiah 53. And in response, Stephen Charnock, the Puritan theologian, said this, A lamb is a meek creature. It hurts none, is hurt by all. It hangs not back when it is led to the slaughter. It cries not when it is pierced. No greater emblem of patience to be found among irrational creatures. To this the prophet likens our Savior when he said, He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. How strange was his humility in entering into such a life. And again, that is true. That describes what Scripture teaches about the first advent of Christ, but that is not the whole picture. 
In fact, we very much need the book of Revelation, especially as we think of the future challenges that are going to come to our faith, both, uh, both in terms of the opposition, in, in, in terms of verbal opposition, as well as the very real potential of persecution in the years to come, that we also need to focus on Christ who is glorious and victorious and is coming to make his justice known. And the text that we have is uh, Revelation chapter 1, and as I said, it's a vision of Christ that presents him in his glory. It runs from verse 9 through verse 20, and we will look at part of that vision this morning. John the Apostle begins this way in, in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, we'll keep going, but I want to draw your attention here already to the outline that we will focus on this morning. In the first two verses, in verses 9 and 10, we're going to see described for us the beholder of the vision, the one who beholds this vision of the glorious, exalted Christ. Verses 9 to 10, the beholder of the vision. And then in verse 11, as we read already, we see the behest of the vision, the the command, the commission that is given in verse 11, the beholder and the behest. And then John continues, and he writes this. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Here in this second portion of the text that I've read, we'll see the bearer of the vision in verses 12 to 16, this lengthy description of the one that John sees, the one who brings this vision to John. And then at, in the first part of verse 17, we'll see the burden of the vision the beholder, the behest, the bearer, and the burden. Let's look first at the beholder of the vision in the first two verses. John begins and he says this, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Christ Jesus. Now we've already met John. In verse 1, he defined himself as the slave of Jesus Christ. He identified his name there at the end of verse 1. He identified his name in verse 4. He says, John, to the seven churches 
that are in Asia. And now he defines himself or describes himself in a little bit of a different way. He calls himself your brother. Here, as John is confronted with the vision of Christ on the island of Patmos, he is not looking to status or authority. Instead, his first self-description emphasizes commonality. It emphasizes family relationship. You see, as he is confronted, as he is here and he's writing, he is confronted with the glory of Christ. All of a sudden, that, that takes whatever status we might have, whatever hierarchy, whatever levels of authority, and it reduces us all to the same level. I, John your brother. And that's important too, because he's writing to Gentile churches and he, as a Jew, had no problem recognizing the spiritual kinship that he had with the believers of the churches to which he writes. He also calls himself a fellow partaker. This second self-description emphasizes mutual participation. It actually comes from that the word koinonia, it's built off the word koinonia, and John defines himself as a fellow participant. John is not aloof to what was going on in the churches. He's not aloof to those to whom he writes. In fact, this mutual participation, John describes in three ways. He's a fellow partaker in what? First of all, he's a fellow partaker in the tribulation. In the tribulation. Now this reference isn't to the great tribulation. That tribulation that is going to come upon the earth. John will write about this in Revelation 3 verse 10 when he gives that that word to the church. When he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Or in Revelation 7, verse 14, where John writes, when asked about who these people are, and John says, I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Uh, This is not a reference to that great tribulation that is going to be described after chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. Instead, when John writes about tribulation here, he is referring to, to the cup of suffering that all believers bear in this life for their loyalty to Christ. Remember, back in August, I taught on a section in Matthew chapter 20, where John and James wanted to be seated at the right and the left of Jesus in the kingdom to come. And and this very much is a connection to that, but remember how Jesus responded. Are you able to drink the cup? And that cup was a reference to tribulation. And James and John, of course, answered very glibly, of course we can. Dunamitha, one word, yes we can. And Jesus said, indeed you will. And by this time, James's life had already been taken. And as we're going to see in just a moment, John, as he drinks the cup of suffering, John is on the island of Patmos. The, the tribulation that is referred to here is the kind that Jesus speaks of in John 16, verse 33, when he says that in this world you will have tribulation. But take courage, Jesus has overcome the world. Or in 2 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul says to his disciple Timothy, 
he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when he speaks of a partaker in the tribulation, this is tribulation with a little t, tribulation that marks the life of the church, that marks our lives as Christians. It's the everyday suffering, not just because we live in a world that's groaning under the curse, but this is a particular reference to the suffering we endure because of our loyalty to Jesus Christ. But then he's a fellow partaker in the kingdom. Now the question is, how do these two things go together? If we are in a kingdom, why is there tribulation? Why is there suffering and affliction? And the answer is, the word kingdom here actually refers to something that comes later. We've talked about this already, that he has called us into a kingdom, and that kingdom is, is going to be revealed at the second coming of Christ. And that's described in Revelation chapter 20. But even as Jesus had said in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30, he said to his disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That was a a future thing for them. But first would come the tribulation, then would come the glory. But it's also fellow participation in the perseverance. Obviously, if our present reality is suffering and affliction, and the kingdom comes only later, then obviously the means to get there is perseverance. The attitude that's required in the midst of the affliction is that of perseverance, that of endurance. And all of this, as we see, John says, is all in Jesus. It is that which defines all of these spheres. We are in the tribulation and suffering in Jesus, in the kingdom in Jesus, and in the perseverance in Jesus. We share in these things together because of him. Now, this is a very important teaching, both the, uh, the concept of present trials, future glory, future kingdom, and the need for endurance in the present moment. And it's something that, in, at least in the Western world over the last however many decades or centuries, this kind of teaching has kind of fallen by the way as a kind of Christendom, as kind of taken over, and we, we tend to, to look at life so comfortably and live life so comfortably as Christians in this Western world. And as a result, so many are unprepared to deal with what is indeed coming. But that is not how the apostles trained believers in their day. And a great example of this is the Apostle Paul's teaching at the end of his first missionary journey, where you have these same concepts come through as part of how Paul taught new believers. Notice how Luke describes Paul's ministry there in Galatia, which would have been a little bit farther east from Asia, where John was writing to, but not that far in terms of distance. But this is how Luke describes Paul's ministry. Acts 14, 21 to 22, after they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, 
strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Notice the three ideas that are there as part of fundamental teaching of Christianity. First, through many tribulations, we must enter. There's the same term for tribulation. Secondly, we must enter the kingdom of heaven, this is, or the kingdom of God, excuse me. This is not a, a reference to entering the church. This is the entrance into the future kingdom. And then we see the need of perseverance. Paul was encouraging them to persevere, to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is the paradigm for understanding the Christian life in this era, that it is a life in which we are to expect tribulations because of our testimony for Christ. It is not the kingdom. The kingdom is coming. That is where we'll find our hope. That is where we'll find our final rest. But until then, we need perseverance. And John identified himself, along with the believers in those seven churches, as being a partaker in these very things. Now he goes on to say in verse 9, as we look at verse 9, we see that there's more to his, his identity. He, he identifies himself as a brother and a fellow partaker, but he also gives these churches an awareness of where he was. He says, And I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus. First of all, we see that he was on this island, this island out into the Mediterranean, or actually the Aegean. And this was John's geographical location at the time. The island was about 40 miles off the coast. The nearest port city was the city of Miletus, 40 miles off the coast. And it's possible that that island, Patmos, We don't know definitively, but it's possible that that island was being used in some kind of a major formal way as a a penal colony for the Romans to dump off prisoners, the kind of persona non grata, that they didn't know what to do with, and they would just dump them off at the island. You couldn't swim to land, and so you're just kind of stuck there. And Paul, or John says, that he was there because of two things. Because of, first, the word of God. The Word of God, it's a reference to his preaching of God's Word. And immediately we we have the notion here that it was because of persecution that John was exiled to this island. He was located there, and as church history tells us, this happened during Emperor Domitian's reign, who ruled from 81 to 96, that, that Domitian had exiled Uh, John there to that island, and John goes on to say that he was exiled there not only because of his preaching of the Word of God, but specifically for his testimony of Jesus. And this is important because it connects with what we know about apostolic preaching in general. What really was a problem for the emperor was that John was preaching, there is a different Lord. That Caesar, that Domitian is not the Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the Savior. He is the giver of eternal life. All of those kinds of descriptions 
were taken by the emperors to refer to themselves. Savior, Lord, Creator, King. All of those titles were taken by the Roman emperors in that deification of the emperors. And you had men like John and obviously other Christians who were proclaiming, no, Jesus and Jesus alone is these things. Now, just a a few pictures here on on some maps to give you an idea of where Patmos is. This map shows you where Miletus is. That's the nearest major port city. About 40 miles into the Aegean to the west of modern-day Turkey is that island of Patmos. It's like a crescent shape if you look at it from kind of a satellite perspective. it's, It's like a crescent Its distance is about 10 miles long. It's about five miles wide at the widest. Some people think it's just this tiny little rock that juts out of the ocean. That's not the case. There's quite a bit of landmass there. And in fact, if you were to go there today, here's just a portion of the island. It's actually quite a, a beautiful, peaceful little island. But like I said, it was a place where if you dropped off prisoners... There was just nowhere for them to go. You couldn't swim to the nearby islands. The currents were too great. And so there was, it was like a a jail. You just drop them off there. Now, just one more note. Speaking of John and his ministry there, the, uh, uh, the, the church historian Eusebius gives us this little account, which I thought would be interesting, gives us this account, Eusebius, uh, he, he wrote his, history in the end of the uh, 3rd century, beginning of the 4th century, so just a couple hundred years after John, and he said this about John's time on Patmos. He said, but after Domitian had reigned 15 years, that's 81 to 96, and Nerva had succeeded to the empire, the Roman Senate, according to the writers that recorded the history of those days, voted that Domitian's honors should be canceled and that those who had been unjustly banished should return to their homes and have their property restored to them. And it was at this time that the Apostle John returned from his banishment to the, in the island and took up his abode in Ephesus, according to an ancient Christian tradition. So John was exiled there, and then as soon as Domitian dies, his decree ends, and according to church history, John is able to return back to the mainland to continue in a little bit more of ministry. But coming back to what John describes, verse 10 now, after identifying where he is geographically, he now gives us an indication where he is spiritually. He says, I was in the Spirit. I was literally, he says, in the Holy Spirit. And that is a a, a special reference uh, to John's revelatory state He was caught up, given special spiritual abilities to discern certain things, to see certain things that is uncommon to the average believer. Moreover, John says that this was on the Lord's day. Some take this to be a reference to the day of the Lord, another reference to the great tribulation, but the language in the original is different. It's not the normal language for day of the Lord, but rather it was used even more broadly outside of the the Bible to refer to a day that was devoted to the the emperor. But in this case, in John's language, he uses this to refer to a special day devoted to the Lord. 
And the best interpretation of that is to take it as the first day of the week. We already know by this time in church history, believers had, had chosen as their day of assembly to, to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and to come together for singing, preaching, hearing the word, praying together, that that was on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Why? Because that was the day in which the Lord had been raised from the dead. Now, what happens now is that as John is on Patmos, as he's taken up into this spiritual state, as he's on the day of commemorating the Lord's resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, he hears behind him a loud voice. It was loud in that it emphasized authority. It was loud in that it emphasized that the message was to be public proclamation. It was loud in the sense that it was clear. In fact, John likens it to that of a trumpet, which in biblical terminology is always something that accompanies that which is emphatically authoritative. It takes us back, for example, to Exodus 19 and 20. We won't turn there, but in Exodus 19, verse 16, for example, we read that when the people of Israel drew near to the foot of Mount Sinai, there there was the thunder and the lightning from the top of Sinai, and there was the sound of the trumpet. And then by the time you get to chapter 20, verses 18 to 19, the people of Israel continue to hear that trumpet, and it's for them terror. They are frightened. It is so authoritative. This is a little bit of what John gets here. He hears that trumpet, that loud voice, And as we're going to see, that will impress him deeply. Let's now look at the behest of the vision. What is is commanded of John in this verse 11? Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John is given the command to write. He'll be given this 11 other times in this book as he's commanded repeatedly to write, to write, to write. That indicates that even John himself realized he was recording in line with the Old Testament prophets, the prophets of God. He was contributing canonical theology as he wrote this record. He is told to write it in a, in a, in a book or literally a scroll. This would have been a scroll of papyrus that, that was taken from the, the papyri plant taken from Egypt and then through a process of, of flattening out that plant stem and, and crisscrossing it to make a kind of paper, it would then be rolled up into a scroll and John is commanded to write what he sees. Now, this is not just a command to write what he sees here, but this is the introductory commission that is going to relate to everything that John sees as he's there on the island of Patmos and as he is taken up into heaven and so forth. In fact, scholars estimate that if you would take the contents of the book of Revelation and put them on a papyri scroll, the scroll itself would be about 15 feet long. John was commanded to write it all. And then he was commanded to send it. This would be sending just one copy 
the copy he wrote, the authoritative copy, and that copy would then be carried to each of the seven churches where they would read the entire scroll and then either make their own copy or the copy would continue on to the the next church. Just one copy to be read in each of the seven locations with copies being made in each location. We've looked at the map already. You can see that when you look at these seven churches, they're somewhat in a circular route. And naturally, as John would send this scroll from Patmos to be carried by seven messengers, these messengers would land in Miletus and then first travel up to Ephesus and there read, one of them would read the scroll, and the one who is the delegate from Ephesus would remain there. The other six would continue, then going on to Smyrna, then Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then finally landing in Laodicea to deliver the last reading of the entire scroll. Now, who is the one who brings this vision to Christ? And this is really impactful The bearer of the vision is described in verses 12 to 16. And here we find deep doctrine of Christ. John begins in verses 12 and 13 saying this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. Now what's important is to recognize that this now is the first vision. There are going to be many visions throughout this book, but this is the one vision that actually happens there directly on Patmos. And we see it in in the language that John uses to describe seeing. Then I turned to see, and having turned, I saw. And again, I saw. And what he sees first are seven golden Lampstands. This is what John sees first. You can imagine that his senses are being overridden by the, the loud sound of the voice, as loud as a trumpet, with that kind of authority. He turns around, and immediately what he sees are these seven burning lampstands. These lampstands are not candlesticks, but rather they were specially created stands on which a lantern or some form of light source would be placed or or hung on the top. And lampstands were important. If you look into the Old Testament, you see that lampstands were, were very, very important within the worship of Yahweh in the tabernacle and in the temple. And we're all very familiar with the menorah, the seven-branched menorah that gives the light. That is the picture that, is, uh, that, it, that John sees here. Seven of these golden lampstands. And in the middle, as his eyes are now being, uh, are clarifying and he's starting to gain his vision, after seeing these lampstands, now he sees who is in the middle of them. And this now becomes the focal point. By the way, the lampstands are going to be described a little bit later in verse 20. He says, John says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, as John records Jesus' words here, he said the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
So these lampstands picture the, the different churches to whom John is writing, but there in the middle is the focus now. His eyesight clarifies, and he sees one whom he describes as one like the Son of Man. Now this language is now going to become very Old Testament-like. And this particular description, the initial description of this person, takes us back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel in that context records these words very similar to what John here is seeing in his own context. Daniel writes this, I kept looking in the night visions, Daniel 7, 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. John recognizes as soon as he sees this one in the lampstands that this is the one Daniel was describing. There's no doubt about it for John. Don't get mixed up there with that word like. It's not intended as if saying that this is someone who is similar to but not the same. That's not the purpose. Rather, the language here directly reflects Daniel 7.13 where the language there too is one like a son of man. The same terminology is used here. John has seen the son of man that Daniel saw. He continues, now as his eyes focus on this one, like the Son of Man, now he begins to pick out his features. First of all, he's described as one clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. And this is a very complex kind of language that's used here. There's some debate about what it means that It echoes Ezekiel 9 verse 2, where Ezekiel describes a vision that he sees when six men come from the direction of the upper gate in Jerusalem, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand, and among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And in the description there in Ezekiel, the idea is one of judgment. And there are these other characters, these six men, that have the shattering weapons in their hands. And in the middle of them is the one who is clothed in linen down to his ankles. So what does this description mean? Of course, we have to be careful of over-interpreting. But the idea here is the, the, that the robe that John sees is a designation that this son of man is the one who comes to bring judgment. It's like the robes that a judge wears. He puts on specifically to go into the courtroom. Now this is the son of man who has robed himself in robes of judgment. And those robe, that robe is very, very significant. Secondly, he is described as being girded across his chest with a golden sash. 
This echoes Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel lifts his eyes in verse 5, he says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. It emphasizes authority. That belt that girded the robe indicated that that was the one of authority. That was the one who made the judgment calls. And that golden uh, sash was a very, very prominent value. It identified the king. Thirdly, we see that his head and his hair were white. In fact, the language that John uses here is his senses are, are reaching their maximum. He uses very specific and very emphatic language. He, he says his head, and, and, and he's speaking specifically of his, his hair, were white, like white wool, like snow. To emphasize the purity of this whiteness, he repeats the term several times. And this too is a Reference back to Daniel, a very fascinating reference back to Daniel. When in Daniel 7 verse 9, we read that Daniel sees this. Daniel says this, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. Now what is amazing here is that we know from Daniel 7 that you have two characters who are the focus of that narrative, that prophecy. You have the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days who is the Father. We know him as God the Father and the Son of Man is God the Son But it is in Daniel 7 verse 9 that is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, who is the one whose hair is white like that. But now as John looks on the Son of Man, he sees that that's a description of of his own hair. And what we find here is, again, some very high Christology. John has no problem uh, describing both the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man using the very same characteristics. He's also described now by by his eyes. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Daniel 10 verse 6 again, going back to Daniel 10. uh, We read this in Daniel's words, his body was like beryl, his face and the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of burnished or polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. That John describes the Son of Man, Jesus, as having eyes like a flame of fire, emphasizing, emphasizes that penetrating omniscience. That's who this one looked like. He continues in verses 15 to 16. He says his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of mighty or many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Feet burnished 
like or feet like burnished bronze. We could read Isaiah 63 verses 1 to 6 from which John draws that description and that description as feet like burnished bronze, feet like bronze that has just been removed from the the smelter and and in that that heat that strength emphasizes that strength and the wrath that is to come, particularly when you read Isaiah 63. The feet do the trampling. And these feet are not feet of clay. They're not feet of something mixed with iron. These are feet of burnished bronze, ready to do the Lord's judgment. And his voice his voice, now John is hearing and he's picking out characteristics of the voice. And the voice is like the sound of many waters. Echoes Ezekiel 43 verse 2. And, and John being on the island of Patmos, you can't really go anywhere on that small island without hearing the sound of the waves. And of course, for anyone, we, we get it when we go to the, the coast. When you're, you're there on the coast, you hear that ceaseless crashing of the waves, and there's nothing you can do to still them. The same idea is here, a voice like many waters, likened to the waves crashing against the rock, one after the other after the other. That is power. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now the hand and the holding of the stars, the holding of those messengers, emphasizes that he has sovereignty over them. He possesses them. We read then about his mouth. Out of his mouth, out of his mouth came a, a sharp two-edged sword. This echoes Isaiah 11, verse 4, where Yahweh is described with these words, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Here from the Son of Man comes this sword, and this sword once again emphasizes judgment, that it comes out of his mouth, indicates that he is able just to speak the word, and the judgment takes place. Finally, his face, his face was like the sun, the sun shining in its strength. It echoes Judges 5 verse 31, that song of Barak and Deborah, which reads as follows, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but those who love you, let me read that again, let Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. That face was as bright as the sun. It was the same face that the apostle Paul had seen on the road to Damascus that blinded his own eyes for three days. John sees that face. This is the glorious Christ. This is who Christ is. Jesus allows John in that moment as he's exiled there on the island, he allows him with his own senses to see for just a brief 
period of time who he really is in his glory. And this is the Christ whom we worship. This is the Christ who has saved us. This is the Christ whom we confess as Lord. This is who he is. And this is a message for us to remember. That even if we are in the similar situation that these churches were in, in that first century, persecuted, even if we are in the same situation that those churches were in with some of them trying to syncretize with the culture, some of them getting comfortable with the world, some of them allowing the morality or immorality of the world to determine their own morality, for each one of those churches, wherever they're at, whether they're persecuted or comfortable or complacent, they needed to see that this is the Christ. This is who He is. And for each one of them, for each one of these churches, that vision of Christ is going to be exactly what they need. In fact, from all of these descriptions in each one of these letters now, we will see that John will take some of those descriptions as Jesus dictates the letters to him, and he will put them in each one of the letters. This is who Jesus is. And that leads us to the final point of our study this morning, and that's the burden of the vision. The beginning of verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Remember, this is John, the son of Zebedee, who, as he even records in the gospel, the one who had, who had been so close to Jesus, who at moments of table fellowship would be pressed up right against Jesus himself. This is John who had touched Jesus, had, had, had walked with Jesus more than most of the other 12 disciples. This is a John, this is a disciple who, who had such close communion with the incarnate Christ on the earth. And yet when he sees him now, He falls at his feet as though dead. And this is a reminder to us that when we think of Jesus Christ, and certainly we must remember him and his humility and his compassion and his meekness, that is not all that he is. And that the more we come to know Christ as he is in his glory, the more we will respond with humility, the more we will respond as John did and fall on the ground in recognition of his glory. That is the message that we need. That is the message that is so very important for each one of us to take from this letter. And it certainly sets this book off in the direction that is needed for each of the seven churches and their contexts, as well as for us. Let's pray that the Lord would embolden and would take this text within our own minds, press it deeply, improve, correct, change our understanding of who Jesus Christ really is. Father, we thank you for this revelation.
That was given to John almost 2,000 years ago. And we confess it is one that we need to correct our understanding of who your Son is in all his glory and then to have our lives impacted by that glory. In those areas where we are complacent, those areas where we are comfortable, or perhaps in those areas where we are suffering because of our testimony, that this vision of Christ speaks directly to where we're at. It causes us to fall on our own faces at his feet, to receive both comfort and consolation as well as conviction and discipline. Father, do that work in us, and we ask it in the name of this glorious Christ. Amen.